In celebrating the Lord's table, we've reminded ourselves that we don't deserve to be part of the body of Christ, to sit at the table of the Lord. It's His merits that have made that possible for us. But that said, when we do belong to Jesus, people that are close to Him can't remain the same. And so while we don't earn our salvation by our good works, genuine salvation produces good works. We are changed from the inside out by the power of the Spirit to the glory of Christ. Because of the love of God, we are changed, and it shows up in really practical ways. At the beginning of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul transitioned from talking about his prayers for the believers there and his joy that they were thriving despite the hostility that they were facing. And he turned his focus to the behavior and activity that genuine gospel believers are to display. He calls for a life of sexual purity in verses 1 through 8. And then in verses 9 through 12, he underscores a second lifestyle hallmark of genuine believers, and that is a loving work ethic that's attractive even to unbelievers. So in verses 9 through 12, follow with me as I read 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And we urge you, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Three major characteristics tightly woven together here of those that are caught God taught. In other words, they're living in a way that God has taught them to live. First, in 9 and 10, they are those who love fervently. They love fervently. This is our responsibility toward believers. We love fervently. And then in verse 11, secondly, we work quietly. This is responsibility for ourselves. So, you have the outward responsibility to other believers. You have this responsibility regarding your own things. And then finally, we are to live honorably. This is our responsibility toward outsiders. And all three of these are actually woven together in our passage as Paul articulates it here. So, in verses 9 through 10, first off, love fervently, our responsibility toward believers. Let's look at verses 9 and 10 again. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. The words taught by God are actually just one word in the language Paul is using, and you could well say it, you are God-taught. You are God-taught people. God teaches us through His Word, obviously, to love one another. Jesus said that you sum up all the law and the prophets, and it's love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
But the focus here is on what we learn from the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit teaches believers to live in a way that's pleasing to God. Paul has just highlighted the role of the Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 8, therefore whoever disregards this, that is the command to love, in, live in purity, disregards not man but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. So, the implication there is that you're disregarding the teaching of the Spirit moving in your life. That's why Paul states that they don't need someone to teach them this truth. If they belong to God, the Holy Spirit who indwells them is already directing them to live with love toward their brothers and sisters in Christ, just as He moves them toward sexual purity. This work of the Spirit in them is why they're already showing love to Christian brothers and sisters throughout the whole region of northern Greece. That's what Macedonia is. We looked at that map earlier on, that whole northern region. And the term that's used here is the word that our city, uh, Philadelphia, gets its name from. Brotherly love is Philadelphia. You can see the first part from the word phileo to love, and then Delphia. Uh, refers to brothers, brotherly love. This is affectionate, loyal, family love, the kind of love that a family that's working well together and that gets along well together, the kind of loyalty that you see and the affection, the, the hugs. We're coming up to Thanksgiving and Christmas time, and uh, just think about the way people greet one another that haven't seen uh, each other for, for months, and they're getting together, and there's usually hugs to go around, and a great delight at being gathered again. Well, we urge you, we exhort you to keep on living this way more and more. The word he uses to urge is a word commonly translated to exhort or beseech. Uh, it can even be to advocate. And, and remarkably, you remember that the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. He's called the exhorter, the comforter. And so essentially what Paul and his companions are doing, they're coming alongside these believers in concert with the Holy Spirit's work in their life, and they're, he, they're encouraging them to live the same way the Spirit would encourage them to live. If you think about it, that's really the function that we have as brothers and sisters. We, we are, we're not trying to rope people into doing things that God wouldn't have them do. Rather, we're coming alongside them and encouraging them to do what God is already encouraging them to do through the Spirit, to do this more and more because there's always more opportunity to show love and care for our Christian brothers and sisters. There's never a day, uh, never a time when we graduate from living this way. Any and every believer who's listening to the voice of God lives this way to one degree or another, but we all need encouragement to do so more and more. We're still in the flesh, and uh, entropy takes over, um, it's easy to slack off. It's easy to sink into self-centered living instead of continuing to seize opportunities to serve the needs of others with affectionate love. There's all kinds of things that can interfere, perhaps an, an illness, or perhaps you're on vacation, or maybe um, your job is, is making a lot of demands or you, or maybe you retired. There's been some kind of life change, and then you drop out of actually serving other people and showing love to them the way that you should. And so we need the encouragement to keep on uh, loving people 
in the way that, that God would have us love them. It's common for us to grow complacent about the needs of those that uh, we live with and that we see often. We kind of get dull. You know, relationships that start off bright uh, kind of fade w- with, with time. Uh, we become blind to the needs because we're so used to having these people around us. Um, we can come to view our spouse or our children or our parents as just assets or liabilities to our own happiness rather than individuals made in God's image and ransomed by the lifeblood of Christ. People that God has placed us together with um, in close proximity so that we can do them good and build them up and not just use them for our own agendas. I'm not sure that we always think about one another that that way. Like I'm often struck, and I've told you this before, that uh, often when a marriage is in trouble, one of my first impressions is I hear their story and we're trying to work through it, is how they treat each other worse than they would anybody else in the congregation. And why does that happen? Well, they get used to living together. They, uh, the flaws that any of us have, uh, that starts to rub people raw, the proverbial burr under the saddle. And, and so we start treating one another in a way that's not consistent with brotherly love. So what kind of evidence shows the believers in your sphere of influence? And I want you to think about who those people are. Uh, your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, your brothers, your sisters, and then beyond that, what evidence shows those believers that you have family affection and loyal love for them? I mean, would they, would they really testify if they were being brutally honest? Would they say, yeah, I know that, that this brother or sister really does love me. I, I know that, that, that they have affection for me and would want, would want my best. In what ways does the Holy Spirit prompt you? Think about moving through a week to treat the persons you know with warm, practical love. Now, let me encourage you. When you sometimes a, a thought will come into your mind about how you can show love to a person, don't, don't let that thought go. If you can't act on it right away, jot it down uh, to remember it so that you're, you're doing these deeds of kindness that show love to one another. And then what do you see in your life that reveals that actually there's a coldness that has come creeping in toward others and their needs? And how can you make that right in the power of the Holy Spirit? If you're actually born again and you have the Holy Spirit, you cannot live at odds with this kind of lifestyle. And, um, you know, it might be one of those discussions you have, particularly those of you that are married, uh, or just families more broadly, and where you ask the question, how can I show love to you in a way that would be meaningful to you, that would be valuable to you? Um, maybe you need to have that kind of discussion if you can't figure it out on our own. And sometimes we, we don't do a good job uh, figuring it out on our own, and we need to have those kinds of discussions. So we want to love fervently. This is our responsibility to one another, and hopefully, you know, as we gather together, that's, that's the feeling that you get uh, from your brothers and sisters here, that there's love for you. And uh, look out for people that seem to be maybe cut off from others and those that are down or discouraged, uh, those that might need somebody to put an arm around them and, and uh, pray with them or maybe uh, set a time during the week to get together. Second, in verse 11, 
we are called and taught by God to work quietly, to work quietly. This is responsibility for ourselves, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you. And we've seen this word instruction uh, before. We saw it just a few verses earlier about sexual purity. This is not just, I got taught this in a classroom. This is a term that's used for orders from a court magistrate or, or directions from uh, somebody who ranks higher than you do in military. They, they were directed to live this way. Now, this, this turn of direction um, may surprise you. In other words, we're, we're going from loving one another fervently to minding your own business and working hard. What, what does that have to do, uh, you know, one with the other? But it demonstrates that there should be no disconnect between genuine love for others and you're taking personal responsibility for your own work. Real love is not lazy. Selfishness is. So anyone who truly loves others rolls up his or her sleeves and works. He puts it this way. He calls them to live quietly. It means to, to be at rest, to be quiet, to remain silent. Um, a lot of th- when there's gobs of talking, on, talking going on, often there's not much work going on. Um, love doesn't express itself in gossip or in meddling in the lives of others. It's not a bunch of talk. Love stays busy working. You know, it's easy to say, I love you. It's another thing to show it by what you do. So, our ambition should be to mind our own business, literally to practice our own things. What does he mean by that? Well, he means to stay busy with our personal work responsibilities instead of wasting our time and the time of other people going about as gossips and meddlers. When we don't take care of our own responsibilities, we add to the workload of others. And if we're going, going about uh, chattering all the time, chances are there's something we're neglecting to do. This is especially obvious in the home. We live in a culture enamored with leisure and entertainment. So it's easy to fritter away our time, and when we do, we're wasting our lives. We're missing out on what God has given us life for. So husbands, if you find yourself sitting around while your wife moves about cleaning up after you, or trying to keep up with the household task on her own, you aren't making a home with her according to understanding the way God has commanded you to do. 1 Peter 3. Get on your feet and pitch in and help her get the work done. When the kids need attention, you shouldn't be leaving that all to her. Here's your ki- here is your kid has a runny nose, okay? You're the dad or a dirty diaper, you're the dad, and you're supposed to be setting the example of self-sacrificing service to others. Mom, if you're wasting your day surfing the internet, dreaming about a life that isn't yours, or gadding about with friends while your home falls apart, who's going to take care of that for you? Mind your own things first, then branch out from there as you're able and by the way, if you're, you're going to be hospitable to people, it doesn't, 
you know, things don't have to be perfect, but they at least ought to feel clean. They ought not have to worry they're going to catch something by coming into your house. <laughs> Anything that should be done can be done in its season. And there are seasons. There are times when, it, you know, things have to adjust, but there's a way to, to get things done. Kids, especially those of you that have adult-sized bodies because you've hit your teen years, are you using your mind and strength to shoulder responsibilities that you can bear? Why should your mom have to pick up your dirty socks or clean up your messy room? You live there. That's your own things. That's your responsibility to take care of, and the Holy Spirit would teach you to do that. How many steps really is it to take dishes to the dishwasher instead of leaving them in their room for weeks? Or to take out the trash? A five-year-old can do it with ease. Are your eyes open? All of us, are our eyes open to what needs to be done? Do we ever volunteer to help? And teens especially, instead of complaining about not having enough freedom, why don't you use the freedom you have for good? By the way, if you're up half the night playing games and watching movies, how do you expect to carry your own load at school or take care of cleaning your room or mowing the lawn? You can't even stay awake, let alone do anything profitable. That is not living in a God-taught way. You know, what's cool is that, that whatever my age, if I know Jesus and I've been born again, I mean, I, I can be a five-year-old in kindergarten, uh, I can be in high school, I can be in college, whatever. I, I, can, live, I can live for God. I, I can follow his directives. And, you know, I think of Samuel serving in the temple when, when Eli's sons, Eli and uh, Hophni, well, Hophni and Hophni and Phineas, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phineas, were, um, you know, were, were living horrible lives. Here is little Samuel, he's probably elementary school age, uh, that is actually serving the Lord and knows the Lord and is hearing from him. In chapter 5, Paul will tell us to warn those that are idle. And he elaborates more fully on what he means in 2 Thessalonians 3. Instead of being busy doing their own work, they were idlers who were busy bodies meddling in the lives of others. They had time to do so because they weren't taking care of their own responsibilities. And by the way, that's a church discipline offense. A person that doesn't repent of that is so living so contrary to the gospel that, that we're actually to remove them from the membership if they will not repent. We're not to have anything to do with them. That's not the kind of love the Holy Spirit teaches us. It just creates trouble. Our culture's addiction to social media has made meddling big business. And many people waste their lives minding everybody's business but their own. The Apostle Paul would say to us, stop talking so much. Be quiet. Focus on working to fulfill your own personal work responsibilities. There's work God has assigned you to do. And note that he says... He, he, he notes working with your own hands. And this is particularly countercultural. The Greeks looked down on manual labor, but Christ and his apostles practiced it and promoted it 
Think about it. Clear back in the Garden of Eden, when everything was perfect, Adam and Eve were gardeners following the pattern of God himself who planted an enclosed paradise of the Garden of Eden for them to cultivate. Christ grew up as a carpenter. Several of the apostles were fishermen. Paul was a tent maker working in the leather trade. But we're thinking that somehow it's more noble or important to work with your brain than your body. You need to work both. It was the Greek pagans who belittled the material body and manual labor and exalted the mind and soul. God created the material world and the immaterial world. God made us integrated beings of body and soul. So if you're truly spiritual in the sense of being under the Holy Spirit's control, you will use both soul and body for His glory and for the good of your fellow human beings. You may be quite a philosopher, but you need to work with your hands. You might find out that half your philosophy is based on an imaginary world instead of the real world. You know, gifts and talents don't free us from hard work. Rather, they indicate where you ought to be focusing your labors. I think sometimes we see people that do really well at things, and we say, oh, I wish I were that talented. Well, chances are if you, if you dug into their lives, you find that they probably work three times harder than many people do, even if they're gifted in a particular field. There's great value to working with your hands. Even what we call white-collar work requires disciplined, determined physical output to keep it doing it well. If you just play at your work or you do it only when you feel like it, you'll accomplish very little that benefits anybody. And the book of wisdom talks about this, Proverbs 28, 19, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Or 14, 23, in all toil there's profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. We cross over into the New Testament, and Paul admonishes one who used to make his living thieving. Uh, now that he's born again, there should be a change. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. That's working to the point of exhaustion, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. In other words, the goal is not just to work so that I become wealthy and so that I have all my stuff, but to work where I have enough things, not just for myself, but for anyone in need. Parents, one of the best things you can do for your kids is to teach them to roll up their sleeves and do physical work. Get them helping in the house and in the yard. Teach them the value of sweat and labor. Build their muscles and their grit and train them to be quick to respond to whatever needs they see instead of just watching from the sidelines so they can critique or expecting someone else to serve them. Show them how to take responsibility instead of making excuses to do what they can do rather than whine about what they can't do. Rescue them from growing up into the overly sensitive, lazy know-it-alls, even if the topic is theology. The world doesn't need a bunch of Christian parasites 
They need Christians who show love to others in the way they take care of their own responsibilities rather than mouthing off about how bad everyone else is. You know, so often the way we win people is not with our mouth, but with, with our work. We, we, we get alongside them. We put our shoulder to the plow. We actually help them in a way that, that makes sense to them. And then, then the theology makes sense. But, but if our lives are contradicting what the Spirit would teach us to do if we're born again, then our gospel efforts aren't going to go very well. In verses 13 to 18, Paul's going to talk about the coming of the Lord. And evidently, some believers are so obsessed with the topic of Christ's return that they were neglecting their own work, leaving idle time on their hands. It was harmful to others and to themselves. Idle time and slothful hands will always get us into trouble in ways that dishonor the Lord. The fact is, any of us can drift into this kind of unprofitable living whenever we yield to our flesh rather than yielding to the Spirit. So if we're actually thinking in line with what is God pleased with, what is God directed, what is the Spirit prompting me to do, then our lives will be characterized not only by love, but by, by industry. So what responsibilities are yours to take care of? And how are you keeping up with those responsibilities? And what areas are you expecting others to serve you rather than you're taking action to benefit them? What are some things you waste life talking about that really are none of your business? I mean, think about the time that we spend doing that. That's time we could have used for something that actually mattered. And then what are some good ways you can labor with your hands to show love for others? and bring glory to God. This is all this like super practical stuff. This is like where we live day in and day out, and we want to live in a way that shows that we are God-taught. And this leads to the third point that Paul makes, and that is that we need to live honorably. This is our responsibility toward outsiders. It's not divorced from the other two. This is what I love about, about God's directives and God's uh, commands, is they, they weave together it's not like a, a list of separate things. It's, it's all part coming from the character of God and, and the way the Spirit would lead us. He says, do all this so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Walking properly means to live your walkabout life. So that's just, you know, everyday life in a way that's decent and becoming that's attractive, that's pleasing. It's actually used in some contexts where, where the idea is that of elegance. You know, that it's a life that's like a, a piece of artwork. It's, it's something that brings pleasure and, and that people can commend. The outsiders are those outside the church. So clearly, there's something about your way of life that the general community can observe. Fact is, your neighbors and friends can see whether you keep up with your own responsibilities, your own property, your family, your obligations at home and at work. Do you pay your bills? Do you live within your means? Do you make good on your promises? Can people count on you? In fact, your unbelieving neighbors know where you ought to be 
on the Lord's Day, even if you want to argue that you have liberty to stay at home. The Scriptures frequently address this topic of doing our work in a way that others can take note. We have the negative of that in Proverbs 24, I pass by the field of a sluggard, picturesque word, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And by the way, you wouldn't describe a person who's being taught by the Spirit as one who lacks sense, would you? And therefore, you wouldn't describe him as a sluggard. Behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, and the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. That verse often comes to mind whenever I see that my lawn needs to be mowed uh, or weeds have grown up in the bush beds or all the kinds of maintenance that happen. Because I've come to believe that retirement is so you can catch up on all the things that have broken during your working years. That said, this verse comes to mind often and think, okay, I don't think you better wait till retirement to take care of that. Take care of it. This, this displays before the world whether you are minding your own affairs, whether you're taking care of your work. First Peter 2 puts it this way, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, those that don't know God, honorable. And the word he uses is the idea of just good and the sense of being appropriate and beneficial and beautiful so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and you know, if a person doesn't know another Christian well, they speak against them as evildoers. When they get to know you, hopefully that changes. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When the day of judgment comes, hopefully they're among the redeemed because your life was so powerful, a testimony to the gospel, that they ended up trusting in Jesus. First Peter 2.15, a few verses later, this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We undermine the credibility of the gospel when we don't show ourselves to be humble, self-controlled, and industrious. Christians who are truly on mission can't let themselves become lax about their own responsibilities while they meddle and gossip about the lives of others. And by the way, you know, when we're sharing the gospel and you're trying to get in on somebody else's life, you know what they think you're doing? They're, they're afraid that you're meddling in business that isn't yours. You, you have to kind of earn your entrance there. You've got to have enough trust there that you can actually have that conversation. We harm the cause of Christ when we make ourselves dependent on others bailing us out when faithful labor on our own responsibilities would take care of the need. Now, there are times, there are uh, times that are crisis points where we need somebody to help us out, and we are taught to do that. On the other hand, there's a lot of crises that are long in the making and that are, are the result of a pattern of laziness or a pattern of misusing our time and misusing uh, our resources. So how can you work in a way that opens doors for the gospel rather than closing doors? And what work do you need to do to take care of, do you need to take care of, rather than depending on others that you could be helping 
in need. If your own affairs are not in order, what steps can you take to get them in line with what would commend the gospel to those who aren't believers yet? Okay, you know, all of us have to work at this, and there are things that, that slip out of control for us. What are those things? Don't just let that ride. Take care of it. And it may be that you need some help. So what church members do you know could help you manage better to achieve this God-honoring goal? And how soon can you get with them? In other words, instead of just letting the problem go on and on and, and, and the bills mount up and up and, and the things not get done that ought to be getting done, get help and get it early. Ha- have somebody who does it well show you how to do it well. Be humble enough to do that. Open your life up to them and, and ask them to help you because this is a gospel thing. This is a display that, that God is in control of your life, that you're God-taught, and this makes it possible then for you to have a credible witness to those who aren't believers yet. Live as God-taught people. Love fervently. That's the responsibility you have toward other believers. And of course, that's going to extend to those who aren't believers yet as well. But work quietly. Take responsibility. This is a responsibility for ourselves. And then live honorably. In a, live in a way, can we call it elegant? Uh, if, if by that we mean something that's beautiful to behold because things are done um, well and opens up doors for outsiders. May God help us to live in line with what His Word and His Spirit teaches us. Let's pray. God, now we are Your people and the sheep of Your pasture, and because we're sheep, it's easy for us to go astray. So God, help us follow Your shepherding of our lives. Lord, for some of us, there, there are deficiencies that, that we've kind of got used to, uh, messes that we've made or that we've not cleaned up that, that we're just so used to, it doesn't bother us anymore. And yet, these are the very things that are interfering with our relationship with brothers and sisters, with our family, um, resentments, difficulties that are there because they're not They're not really positive that we even love them because of the way we behave. Um, And Lord, in some cases, this limits our ability to actually share the gospel with other people because our life just isn't commendable. It doesn't match what, what the Spirit would teach us in terms of how we're to live. God, keep growing us. Help us to become more and more like Jesus. It's It's impossible for us to imagine Jesus as one who failed to love others and have compassion on them. It's impossible for us to think of Jesus as one who who wasn't busy working, wasn't, wasn't a strong worker. It's impossible for us to think of Jesus as one whose life didn't commend the gospel to those who weren't believers yet. Lord, help us follow him and bring him glory as we do. For it's in Christ's name we pray.